listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. My name is Dustin Anderson, and today I have the pleasure to interview Max Strom, the author of There Is No App for Happiness, How to Avoid a Near-Life Experience. Welcome, Max. Thank you so much, Dustin. It's wonderful to be here with you. So, I, I just finished reading the book, and it's a great book, and Thank I, you. yeah, it, it's it's useful among among many spiritual. Well, I mean, that's the spiritual path <laughs> in my mind, right? It, there's it, it it lays out the problems, and then it offers useful tips in terms of this particular book on how um, you are you're quite critical of technology in parts, I find. Well, that's that's interesting. You know, I actually I I uh, don't feel that I am oh. uh, tech, critical of technology. I'm very critical of much of our use of technology. Uh, for example, Facebook, Twitter, um, social media like that. I have accounts that I use both for both of those, so fa- Facebook and Twitter. There's nothing wrong with them. They're very useful. What is the problem is when we find ourselves addicted to such things and spend an inordinate amount of hours of our life on them, believing that they're connecting us deeper to our society, our, our immediate social world, when actually they are alienating us. Because human beings communicate 90% nonverbally. So when we're having a conversation by text, it's a 10% relationship in essence. So it's you know very appropriate to send a text and say, um, there's traffic, we're going to be delayed a few minutes. But to write a text and say, you upset me last night and to start an emotional conversation leads down a very perilous path of miscommunication. Um, we need to be able to look into people's eyes and watch for nonverbal cues and body language and so on. Uh, a mother would never hire a babysitter simply based on text. They would have she would have to meet the babysitter to ascertain whether this person is trustworthy or not. And we're missing out on that with uh, too much social media and uh, texting. And I think that's why people are developing so many symptoms, um, nervous system disorders, essentially depression, anxiety, and sleep disorder. Yeah, you know, flashback. This, actually, that's actually what I remember reading now. <laughs> the... the, the uh, yeah, and it's it's interesting though. I like how you um in part of the book you you actually incorporate the use of a smartphone in recording to use it to record an argument in order to dissect and and be very scientific in how we engage in um an argument with our uh a loved one. That's right. I, I couldn't help but notice that uh, people are posting everything about themselves. And, um, you know, if anything happens anywhere, the, the iPhone comes out and it's videotaping it. Um, but what people aren't using technology for is to actually record themselves when they're in trouble with the relationship. In other words, um, we're having a, you and your significant other are having a big disagreement. Uh, people don't tend to turn their phones on and record it. Say, let's record this and look at it later and see if we see things the same way. Let's see if we can learn from this. Let's videotape, in fact, 
Um, there's not a lot of that going on. And the reason I know is I ask my classes when I give workshops on this subject, I say, raise your hand if you've ever done this, and I have yet to see a single hand go up. So I think the reason we don't like to record ourselves when we're having an argument is because we secretly know that we're not going to like what we see later. But this would be a good use of technology to learn from, uh, to grow from, and to improve our relationships. I agree. And and when I wrote it, I brought it up with my wife, and and she wants personal growth as much as I do. And at the same time, she was uh, she wasn't as exa- excited about it as I was. but i love i love the idea of seeing myself make mistakes and then having the opportunity to uh correct them and i and i love that as an op as a a really simple way and useful again yeah yes Mm -hmm. so again i'm I'm not anti-technology whatsoever we just we've just gotten so much of it so soon i think we haven't quite sorted out how to use it all yet and just as we do sort it out they changed and upgraded anyway so it's like we're we're climbing a slippery slope and we we just can't get ahead of it. So it's really important that we really look at technology and and make some decisions like this. Does this make my life simpler, or does it make it more complex? Do I feel actually like I'm communicating better, or am I just communicating more often? And asking ourselves really direct questions like that, and then sorting through what is useful about technology and what isn't. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's interesting. So then, in your classes, do you do you bring have them? How do you engage people with their technology within your classes themselves? Because people are carrying the stuff around with them all the time. Well, I ask them to switch it off before they come into class. Um, what I ask them to do is take out a pen and paper, and I have a specific workshop based on um, my book, Uh, and in the workshop, it's a two-hour workshop, people bring writing materials, and I ask ten questions, which are in my book, and I give them only three to five minutes to answer each question, and they're big questions. They're questions such as, how do you define happiness? And at the end of the two hours, they have a lot more information about themselves than they had when they walked in. I didn't provide them with that information. I provided them with questions which caused them to dig a little and illuminate themselves from the inside out and to write it down and walk away with it. And it, people find it very, very useful. Even the question of how do you define happiness is a remarkable question to ask a group of people because on the very first glance, that could seem like a simple and insipid question. But looking just a little deeper, we find that, hmm, if you ask me about my favorite sports team, I can answer immediately. I have encyclopedic knowledge about my favorite sports team, and I can talk for hours about it. But if you ask me what makes me happy, I actually have to think about it, meaning I haven't thought a lot about it. I do not have encyclopedic knowledge about it. Yet, everyone wants to be happy. It's the one thing that people across the board, across nationalities, religions, political ideology, they will all raise their hand if you say, do you want to be happy? Do you want your children to be happy? Yet we know almost nothing about it. So just asking people to define it, what exactly makes you happy in life, is a big deal. And the example I give is that 
happiness, your def- definition changes every five years or so. You know, um, like what you may not be have the same view of happiness as you did when you were five. Maybe you don't want to be an astronaut or a fireman now, you know, <laughs> the way you, or a pirate <laughs> as you did when you were five. Hey, that did you know, change for me though. <laughs> on occasion, people know who they are early on. <laughs> funny. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the yeah, it's it's and in you talk about uh, choosing your technology wisely, and I will. I, I like that you talk about you give exercises in the book and like you say offering just asking questions about happiness because i remember that exercise being in the book and doing it and uh and it's it's could you speak more about how you uh develop the exercises for each uh chapter and was this because you have a a a history of um eastern practice in your repertoire Mm -hmm. that's right so you've uh you've um, assimilated it, and then you've uh, created, and I and I really like how you've made um, this accessible for people that don't have your breadth of knowledge of of the Eastern spiritual practice. Could you speak more about how you of maybe what practices you used, and then um, to create these exercises for the the layperson like myself? Uh, certainly. Um, I've studied uh, a great deal uh, in the philosophies of the world and comparative religions. And uh, this has started, gosh, I think it started when I was about 15 years old. I, I started early in terms of my interest in what is the meaning of life? You know, is there life after death? Is there a God? Questions like that. I was very fervent about them at a very early age. Um, Taoism, Buddhism, um, Sufism was a big part of my life for a long time uh, in terms of study and learning from teachers and reading and uh, and of course Hatha Yoga these are the main um, lakes that I, I drank from you could say but uh, as you get older as you know uh, we start putting things together for ourselves as well we start to you know at some point you have to stop gathering stuffing more knowledge in your head and actually use it you know it's not it's you can't just go through life reading manuals you actually have to live life and um as a teacher i can't believe how much i learned from being a teacher about human beings because i have the luxury of stepping into a room full of strangers and directing them to do things and watching their responses and i get to see universal responses to not only yoga postures or breathing practices, but questions. I can ask a question in a certain way and notice how people shift in their seat or look to the right or to the left or lower their head when I ask the question or raise their head. So by studying human beings, one can learn a lot about the human race, including oneself. Um, The questions are questions that... It used to be fewer. It's ten now. I think it started as five, then it went to seven, and now it's ten. But they're questions that I started asking myself. Uh, Happiness is supposedly something that I want. So, what is it exactly? What? How would I define it? Um, Who are my true friends? What is it? What is a true friend? Uh, I I need to figure this out because I I felt like 
with my true friends, I wasn't spending enough time with them. I wasn't nurturing the relationships as much as I should have. And I wasn't exactly sure who my true friends were. And I thought, this is important. People say we don't get a lot of true friends during life. You know, you're lucky if you have a handful of really true friends. So I wanted to sort these things out. And when I did these exercises, it was so mind-boggling to me of how what an impact they had. I thought, I need to start sharing these things in my classes as well. And I became quite startled when I started looking at society as a whole at the huge learning gaps that we have in our society. Uh, I think you saw my TED Talk where I asked the question to the audience, um, you know, raise your hand if you were taught conflict resolution in school. And usually one hand, you know, out of a hundred will go up. You know, we, we tell our teenagers to behave, but we don't teach them how. And I asked the question, did you learn to breathe to give birth? You know, so many women have learned some sort of breathing exercise to help the birthing process. And women say yes, and in my classes I'm more specific. I say, how did it help? And women generally say, it helped me not to panic, it helped me to focus, and it helped decrease physical pain. So then the next logical question is, could this help anybody else besides pregnant women? I mean, who else needs to focus? <laughs> exactly. Who else needs to focus, not be in physical pain, and not panic? I mean, society should be taught these practices, not just women having babies. So that you start shining your light around society, and you look at this, you find these gaping holes. I mean, let me ask you, when you were in school, were you given a manual on happiness, a single textbook? Did you have any mentorship? None. Exactly. I not didn't a either. deal. Yeah, you know what? I, I uh, in my work as a children's performer, I'm in front of an audience of 300 to 500 students, and I do the breathing technique with them. Just breathe in through your nose, hold it, let it back out again, and it's it's mind-boggling how how centered it's just it's just profound how centered a whole group of jacked-up children can just come come to focus really quickly, and and teachers don't know this stuff. But teachers no. come up and thank me after, and it's just so simple. And it's it's just affirming that, uh, yeah, that you that it works for adults too. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, well, Dustin, well, my theory, the reason I think that we're not taught anything about happiness is there has been this unspoken agreement that has huge momentum in our society, where if you are successful you will be happy. Therefore, the emphasis on education is to get, get you know, the right schools, get the good education, get the career so that you're successful, make a great deal of money, you're happy, problem solved. But as you know, there have been many books written now that have, um, from people who have done studies on this where it's been proven that if you have your basic necessities met, that beyond that, money does not buy happiness. If you have enough food, clothing, shelter, medicine, and a sense of safety, an extra 50000 is not going to change your level of happiness. And I work with people sometimes. They come to me as students who work with the very, very wealthy, you know, the, the, the super wealthy. And most of those bankers and so on, they say, these are the most miserable people I know. The people who are absolutely off the chart wealthy, none of them are happy. Disconnected too. Yes, disconnected too. So we need to start with education and actually get children to begin to think about happiness 
and to start to define it. And at first, it'll be things like I want to be a, an astronaut, or you know, I love my dog, and that, but that's good. Get them to identify it. And when they get to be teenagers, it changes now. Romance plays into it. Maybe they want a car, or you know, you know whatever it is. But what one discovers, if you look at the different causes, this uh, what should I say? The the external circumstance is usually the cause of what we call happiness. Um, you know, pleasure, food, uh, sex, vacations, fame, all of these things come from something outside. But if one goes on a spiritual journey at all or has some hard lessons in life even, we learn that happiness does come from the inside. Even registered nurses know this. I mean, if a registered nurse works in a hospital, they're mostly taking care of people who are suffering. It's not a fun job yet they are fulfilled in doing it. They could do something else, but they find meaning by helping other people. And when they put their head down on their pillow at night, they know that they have contributed to this world. That gives them meaning, and that gives them happiness. Yeah, and so then could you uh, review uh, a couple of the questions you have? Like, in the book, you talk about you have your happiness question, and for our listeners, it'd be interesting for them to have a a taste of maybe some of the ha- like the happiness. Prog- there's a there's the happiness questions, and then the progression of them. Right? You have several exercises. Could you share? Would you mind sharing uh, that portion of your teachings? Um. I can do that. I'll have to crack open the book to do it, though. I don't have okay. the, that chapter memorized, but oh. I can do it. Why don't you ask me another question while I look it up? Okay. The um, well, to be honest, that these are the these are the biggest ones for me in terms of the book. Like it's the for me the most profound parts are in are you also emphasize breath as a really important exercise, and I, we just covered that, but. You talk about how in Qigong you compare Hatha Yoga and Qigong, and that yes. Hatha Yoga, well, he, Qigong gives you the sense of Qi or Qi or however you choose to pronounce mm-hmm. um, life energy, but that Hatha Yoga is more rounded. So your experience, you've experienced obviously Qigong as well as Hatha Yoga. Mm-hmm. And it would seem like you're, you suggest that Qigong might be a great place to begin or maybe to supplement a Hatha Yoga practice. That's right. And I know some listeners will disagree with me, and, and that's that's fine. We have our different experiences. But again, one, one of the benefits of dealing with, at this point, tens of thousands of people is, you know, it's, it's like a big Petri dish. You get to do experiments to see results. And I, I'm a big believer in Qigong as a practice of longevity. It, does, it, it can extend your life. It can vastly improve your health, not only of your internal organs, but of your flow of energy, your qi. No question. But I've known people who practice Qigong for decades, but emotionally, they don't change much. I haven't seen a lot of huge breakthroughs Emotionally, in other words, they still might have the same social issues, hot-headed or unreliable or uh, sociopathic tendencies, <laughs> things like that. You know, 
they're very healthy and they're going to live a long time, but I don't see any big breakthroughs there. I, it's, and it's, as far as I have experienced, it is not known for that. Whereas there are certain yoga type of breathing practices that cause an emotional breakthrough sometimes within just a few sessions where people uh, have a breakthrough. Usually it's through uh, constrained grief. It's grief that they've been holding in their body from a trauma or some sort of grief event in their, in their past. And when we hold on to grief, it causes us to behave badly. It causes us to make bad decisions. And um, those are those strange triggers that we experience in our relationships where somebody says something and all of a sudden we're really angry and our significant other says, oh, that's a button for you, isn't it? And you say, yeah, it is. I don't like that at all. And where did that button come from? That's uh, an unreconciled wound that we have in us. And certain breathing practices, and I know this will sound strange to people who've never experienced it, will bring these things right up to the surface. It's almost like truth serum. And we will have the memories that accompany it, and we'll start to understand what happened. And with a new uh, new insight of being an adult, being older, we can process whatever happened quite quickly and move on. And this makes us a, a lighter, more friendly, more balanced human being. So I'm not saying don't do Qigong. I do Qigong, and I do it almost every day. I'm saying the two together, I think, really are the holy grail. So yoga breathing and Qigong together. So yoga breathing, then, not yoga asana, but rather Kabbalah. No, of course, yoga asana as well. Uh, but we were, we were just talking about breathing just oh, now. But oh, okay. I, I, I'm, I am a firm believer that yoga asana is very important. But also Qigong movement can be very important. If you notice, most yoga postures are very linear movements, you know, arms straight ahead or arms right out to the side. Yeah. Whereas in Qigong, there's a lot of circular movement of the joints. And I think that this is very good for the joints to move in a circular fashion and a spiraling fashion. For the limbs will move in a spiraling fashion. And yoga doesn't have much of that. So for what I teach is a combination of the two. Oh, interesting. So you, when you teach a, an asana class, it, it incorporates both. Will you include the Qigong uh, flow with mm-hmm. w- within uh, some hatha um, That's right. poses as well. Interesting. And mm-hmm. could uh, would our our listeners be able to see some of that flow on the net to see what it looks like? Uh, I don't think so. I, I'm I have to say I've I haven't videotaped my work as much as some other teachers have. I know there's <laughs> teachers. <laughs> there are teachers out there who videotape themselves every day and put it on Twitter. Uh, I, I tend to get around to it about every three years, it seems. I'm going to have to increase my frequency to, with the video camera. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then, um, because it would be interesting to, because I see them as, personally I see them as, like you in the book you state, yeah, one stands and one is primarily on a mat and working through downward dog and, supine and um, mm-hmm. more uh, horizontal positions like yoga is mm-hmm. and it'd be interesting to see how you incorporate the two of them because you're you're in Maryland aren't you I am just you're, outside of DC yeah so you're in Maryland and we're on the west coast in Vancouver I mean our listeners are all over but for those in, in Maryland that's great for us in Vancouver 
you know, I, I can just imagine the the grace and beauty of it. But other and you know, look at your picture in the back of the book and just sort of try to wonder what it would look like. But um. <laughs> well, I'm going to be in Vancouver uh, shortly, so if anybody's oh. curious, they can come to uh, Semper Viva Yoga and uh, and join in some workshops with me. And they can find that information on the on the website, the Semper Viva. Website. Yeah, they can either go to uh, maxstrom.com. Or um, and they'll find it there, or to the Semperviva Yoga website and find it there. Um, I'm going to be there um, the 31st of October, and the first. I'm looking at my calendar now. The first, second, and third of November. Excellent. This year. That's fantastic. That's great news. So then, did you find? Do you? I find, did. You found the the yes the happiness exercise in your book. Yes. Excellent. Uh, and, and what part specifically would you like me to focus on now? Well, it would be more interesting. I'm just. It would be great to give the listeners um, a taste of some of these fantastic exercises that you have in your book, and the simplicity in which you present these very useful and profound questions for us as humans. Okay. Well, that would be great. Let's see which one shall I choose here. Um, well, here's one of the questions. Uh, I ask who is the most joyful adult that you know? And I, I say adult because people will usually go right to their kids if they want to think of a joyful person. Mm -hmm. So I ask people to think of the, first, uh, the most joyful or happy adult that they know, or two or three of them, if they can think of them. And you should see people really have to think, yeah. Who do I know that's happy? And they dig it. And sometimes when I speak with them later, they, they say, you know, it's just this young lady at the coffee bar. You know, she's just the happiest person I've ever seen. I don't even know her first name. P people will bring up people like that, just someone in their sphere that just always exudes happiness. And then what I point out is, first of all, being a barista is not an easy job. They're dealing with a lot of cranky people who want their coffee. Yeah. So, so it's even more admirable that someone can exude happiness while they're basically taking abuse quite often during the day. <laughs> <laughs> and what I encourage people to do is actually to interview the person they chose. You know, say I'm studying happiness. I'd like to interview you and ask you some questions and sit down and interview that person because that person should be one of your teachers. That person knows something you don't know. The person has worked out some issues with with life. And um, I'll give you an example. I was at a restaurant with a friend who I would say is a happier person than I am. And I consider myself a pretty happy person. But he's just extraordinary. And uh, we were at a restaurant, just the two of us. The waiter came up and it was uh, it was really something. The waiter was ridiculously rude. It was like a Saturday Night Live skit. You know, he just about as rude as a waiter could be to two strangers. And when he walked away, I felt a little offended. And I looked at my friend, and he just busted up laughing. I took it personally, and he thought it was funny. It really didn't bother him. I thought, there you go, right there. But he has a skill that I don't always have of of laughing at, a, at someone else's um, ridiculous behavior. And we can't always laugh in life, you know. Sometimes very sad things happen, tragic things. I'm not saying we should all do belly laughs when someone close to us passes away. But 
if we could take things less personally like that, like, like my example, 20 more times during the day, we'd have a happier life. If we could learn not to react to things that really have no meaning, that's a skill. And that's what we need to learn from these people who are happier than we are. They live in the same world we do. They watch the same news on TV we do. But some people choose to be crotchety, miserable, and mean. <laughs> and other people are full of joy. How does that happen? And, and if you could look into your, uh, take a moment to look inside your Petri dish of thousands of students for me, the is the, the that person that these people, that your students find happy, is it, uh, is there a, an archetype or a, a, a personality type or a person that, a personality that people will consistently find as the happiest person? No, I think it's across the board. Okay. Uh, many different age groups, many different types, um, different financial uh, categories. Um, I don't. I haven't found a particular type yet. There. Okay. My personal experience is when we've traveled to Cuba, people mm -hmm. that have nothing mm -hmm. are way are are generous and kind mm -hmm. and happy far more than the, the wealthiest people I know really mm -hmm. really interesting mm -hmm. I found the same thing when I went to India and Nepal of course you know it depends on what degree of poor we're talking about you know the we're not talking about people who are starving to death we're talking about people who probably have enough but really not much more than that and in India, I found uh, uh, a lot of people who were astoundingly happy, who lived in basically a shack and thought, this is not a bad house. You know, I keep warm, it keeps the rain out, it's fine. And they had no stress about it. Yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, our world is, uh, in North America, can be quite different. Interesting. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Another question I ask is... Um, I ask people to identify the happiest period of time in their life. Yeah. And write and write write a little bit about it. And then later, you know, after they've answered all the questions, I come back and probe into these questions a little bit and I I ask them how much did money have to do with this time period? In other words, this is your happiest period, was it because of money? And I you should look across the room. People just shake their heads. No, it wasn't. So this is a way that, with their own hand, they just defined that with how they define happiness has very little to do with money. So then why are they spending all their time trying to get money? That's the next question. <laughs> you know, can you recreate the circumstances where you didn't have much money necessarily, where you were, when you were happier? You know, we, we need to really look at what we're doing because at the end of our life, uh, we're, we don't want to look back with regret. And nobody's going to look back and say, you know, if only I'd watch more reality television. <laughs> yeah, I believe that's quoted word for word from your book, actually, that, it, that one line. It, it is. I just stole that from myself. <laughs> yeah, that was, I, I remember that because it's very, very true. Okay, could you share, because uh, I, I remember having that same experience that the the happiest times of my life have never been around times where 
money is really flowing. It's always mm-hmm. other circumstances. Could you share one other one other question, and then I will find yeah one other question from the book, please. Yes, uh, one of the big questions I ask. Um, of course, the first one is to define happiness, but let's move to one of the last questions I ask. I ask people what their mission in life is. And you should see the faces, the expressions on people's faces when, when you ask that. So for some people, it's like you just stuck their finger in a light socket. They weren't ready for it, and most people aren't sure. So the responses from a, a group of 50 or 60 people uh, is a lot of people have to really think about it. They, they don't know the answer immediately. Some people don't know at all yet. They haven't figured out what their mission in life is. And I'm very clear to define, I don't mean what what is your career. Some of us are lucky that our career and our mission in life are the same. But others, it's not at all the same. For example, I know a woman who was a high school teacher who was constantly voted favorite high school teacher you know, in her, in her school. She was always voted most favorite. She was a history teacher, an American uh, government, U.S. government. Those are not favorite topics of high school kids generally. American history, you know, and U.S. government, 17-year-olds don't really care. So why was she favorite? Was she funny? No, she wasn't funny. She wasn't a comedian. She helped raise the self-esteem of teenagers. That was her mission in life. That's what she was gifted with. Kids with no self-esteem who are F students or D students across the board would come into her class and somehow she would raise their self-esteem and they would become B students across the board, all their classes. And that's what she was famous for. So in her case, I would say her mission in life, in in my opinion, was to raise the self-esteem of young people while she happened to teach history in U.S. government. So I asked my class. Yeah, she's a beautiful lady. She's my mother. Really? Yeah. And uh, I asked people then, so what is your mission? It might not be the same as your career. What is your mission? And I think it's important we know that, and if we're not sure, to to work on it a little bit. Because if if we're going to fulfill our mission, A, we need to know what it is, and B, to make decisions and take actions that support our mission. So we have a fulfilled life and not a confused life where we're entertained by video games along the way. Yeah. Y- yeah. This is uh, true. So then if a person, say, is immersed in video game reality te- television world, um, in your book you talk about transitions, to, spe- to set up to win. I mean, that's my own language. That's not your language. Mm-hmm. But... Um, in terms of uh, doing small practices where they can have a sense of the power or the usefulness of meditation rather than being forced to sit down for an hour and just struggle. Um, mm-hmm. Could you provide our listeners some guidance on on those practices? There is a little bit of a, a – you touch on that, I, I think, in the book, but there could you provide some guidance to maybe our listeners – that are beginning this on how to test the waters of different practices to find out what will work for them. Yes, I, I think what you're referring to is meditation specifically, as I, I speak of it in the 
in the book, yes. uh, I teach meditation. Uh, it's one of the tools that I teach my students, and I'm a believer in it. But when I first started practicing it in groups and going to various meditation classes, I found that most people did not get anything out of it and would not come back. And when I first started teaching meditation, I taught it the way my teachers taught it. You know, sit down, don't think of anything. You know, try to quiet your mind. And when I, as a teacher, after a couple of minutes, I would open my eyes and look around the room. What's going on while my eyes are closed? Maybe I should look. And sure enough, there are people looking out the window. There are people looking at their watch. They're basically just enduring this. They like the yoga class and they're enduring what we call meditation. So I realized that a lot of people weren't being reached. So I spoke with people about it and I think people are so, their, their mind is so busy. They have so much stress and maybe anxiety that when you ask them to sit down, close their eyes and think of nothing, it's not possible for them. For some, yes, but for many, it's not possible. Or they don't have the willpower to make it possible. They're not motivated. So what I've learned is as the entry level to meditation, I don't ask people to sit and close their eyes and think of nothing anymore. I have them sit and close their eyes and listen to my voice. Then I lead them through a guided meditation. You know, we use our imagination all the time for creativity and for entertainment. But another way you can use your imagination is to change your inner state. So I lead them through a scenario that changes their inner state. And people can be moved to tears in three minutes flat, have an emotional opening in three minutes flat, simply by knowing how to walk them through a guided meditation. Now, once they're emotionally open, then they're ready to sit still. You see what I mean? So it's, mm. it's just like teaching postures. It's step by step to ascertain what's the appropriate starting place for the student and adjust rather than just teaching a form and letting, you know, uh, if you teach 50 people, four people will like it and 46 go home and say, I don't like meditation. They won't try it again. That's sad. So I'm learning to um, to adjust to the the modern mind, you know, the the, the, the over-caffeinated, underslept, uh, too many cell phones, too many emails <laughs> mind. <laughs> yeah, my, one of my personal challenges is that, I, I mean, I grew up in Canada, and I'm not from India, and much of the practices are from India, or... Yes. And peop, I, I'm assuming a 42-year-old man in India is going to think about life a little bit differently than I do. Well, yeah, of course, it depends on what what caste they're from and what economic bracket. But, but yes, uh, the, the overall ambiance of spirituality is, is, you could say, in general, very different than it is here. Uh, for example, here, someone might consider themselves very religious, very spiritual, or spirit, very spiritual. But we're supposed to keep our religion and our spirituality in our homes. In India, it's perfectly acceptable, for example, to put a piece of cloth down in the park and pray openly and that here you might think oh, that's probably a homeless person or <laughs> someone who's <laughs> mentally not right but the spirituality is more out in the open uh, in India than it is here and different cultures celebrate their spirituality together in India as well whereas here we're socialized not to talk about religion that's right 
That's right. Uh, we have to remember that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily do things exactly the way they do them in Canada or the United States. Even the, even the dem demonstration of grief in America, funerals are pretty grave, if not grim, places sometimes. Whereas, and the men don't cry at all, and the women will cry, but they try to hold it back. In other parts of the world, there's open, they're very demonstrative of their grief. They'll cry, they'll they'll yell, they'll they'll shout. You know, and when we see that on TV or on the news or something, we think, God, that's bizarre. It's not bizarre to them. And maybe it's more cathartic. Maybe they feel better at the end of the day, and maybe we don't. You know, they're cultural ways of expressing or restraining emotions. And one of the things that in Canada and the United States and other countries of Europe and Australia, et cetera, that I think we could stand to change is a healthier way of dealing with our grief. I think people are walking around like like corn silos, just full of grief, storing it for for who knows what reason. Uh, people are um, debilitated by grief, I believe. I would uh, I would agree from my own personal experience. So mm. then, on the last, we've got time for one more question or one more path of uh, discussion. I, I would like uh, for our listeners that uh, may have haven't had the opportunity to read your book yet, which I, I'm assuming is going to be available at Banyan Books here in Vancouver. Um, there is there's no app for happiness. Max Strom is that available on your mm -hmm. website as well? Uh, it, it is not available on my website. I just direct people to Amazon. Okay, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble websites now. Okay, so then what is uh, what could you offer our listeners that, once again, are maybe not as uh, educated in the spiritual path to give them an another taste of what you feel would be an essential element of the book that would inspire them to look at, to find the book, and then, uh, and then reading it's easy because it's such a great read. But is there another element you can... Um, offer from the book yes yes uh, I'd like to leave them with this message that we're in the, in the middle of a, or I should say really the beginning of a of ex the um, exponential growth of information technology uh, everything's changing all around us so very quickly not just our handheld devices and computers but everything including biomedicine you know um our lives are being extended as we speak. I don't know if you saw the Time Magazine issue that showed a baby and said, this baby will live to be 150 years old. This this is not guessing. Um, children born today are going to have a considerably longer lifespan than, than our parents. And it's being um, projected that babies born today will live to be 150 and that teenagers maybe 120. You and I maybe 100, whereas maybe we thought it would be mid-80s. So, we're extending our lifespan. That's fantastic. But to what end? Because in the United States, we have these statistics that I don't think should be ignored. Um, we can't sleep anymore in the United States. We have 80 million people, that's 8-0, taking sleep medication every night. Wow. Now, when you can't sleep, that's a sign that your nervous system is throwing up a red flag saying, I have a problem. It's a symptom. 
it's not it's not a syndrome as much as it is a symptom of a problem with the nervous system. And we just medicate it. Eighty million people are taking medication every night to go to sleep. Now the medication is not like penicillin where if you have a infection you take penicillin and then it's gone. Sleep medication helps you till you stop taking it and then you're right back where you were again. So it's not a cure, it's a symptom suppressor. So that's how we're handling it. We're not really handling it. We're just pushing the symptoms down. Meanwhile, the amount of people taking antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs is spiking like crazy. We have one out of four women taking one of those two drugs or both. One out of four. Wow. And about one out of five of the men in this country. Your country's not far behind. The UK, it's a little worse. Saudi Arabia, it's one out of two women. But these aren't static numbers. These are fast-growing numbers. So at what point are we going to say, maybe we need to look at the way we're living and realize that it isn't making us happy. Not if we have to go to the doctor and say, I don't know what else to do. Can you give me a pill? Because I don't feel good emotionally. That's where we are. So my work is to help people recalibrate how they think so they can ask themselves questions, learn more about themselves, find out what makes them happy, truly happy, with meaning, and then adjust their actions and decisions to support that. That's the message of my book. I agree. That is what I have learned from it. And I'm really grateful, Max, for your time today. And I'm hoping to make the your workshops here. So from October 31st, November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at Sempra Viva, People can yes. find more information at maxstrom.com or Sempraviva's website here in Vancouver. And will this be a four-day uh, uh, course, or will people be able to uh, come in for a day or a session if they need to? The Thursday and Friday sessions are for teachers or teachers in training. And then the Saturday and Sunday, I believe there are four separate workshops, so people could take one, two, three, or four of the, you know, choose what they want to sign up for. Uh, but these generally uh, fill up, so they shouldn't hesitate too long if they would like to sign up. And I hope to see you there and meet you in person. Yeah, I, I hope to make it as well. And uh, once again, Max, this is uh, Dustin Anderson for Jersey Point Radio uh, saying a huge wave, sending a huge wave of gratitude to you, Max Strom, of mm. the author of There Is No App for Happiness. How to Avoid a Near-Life Experience. Thank you very much, Max. Much gratitude to you, Dustin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.